Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Last time, we heard that Outbound began shipping complete Macintosh laptops by the end of 1991. Yet Outbound didn't survive past the end of 1992. What happened? You are about to witness a revolution called PowerBook. Person using a PowerBook 170 in their lap that somehow has lots of fancy-looking applications open, despite the 170 shipping with only 4 megs of RAM. It will let you run MS-DOS software. It will let you run Macintosh software. It will let you run... Zoom out to show the PowerBook 170 user sitting on the very edge of a vast mountainscape. Away. It's not a notebook, it's a PowerBook. What's the difference? Well, this thing is like nothing ever was. It had my whole life in it. What do you mean? So wherever we go, we always stay connected. Everyone in sales has one now. My expense reports, invoices, orders. It's a great way to meet girls. That resolution on that. Yeah, I really like it. Hardly weighs anything. I can fax from any phone. Very comfortable. This lets me do it. Whole nine yards. Everything else is a dinosaur. Can I try it? No. PowerBook from Apple. The PowerBook 100 series wasn't necessarily any better than Outbound's product. But who are you going to trust with your money? The multi-million dollar giant with a massive global dealer network and lots of third-party accessories lined up? Or a tiny company from Colorado that's barely clinging to its Macintosh ROM license? Macworld December 1991 Special Report The new Macintosh PowerBooks 100, 140, and 170 No longer must your shoulder ache from lugging around a Mac Portable, a headless 2CI, or a compact Mac. Nor must you work furtively on a DOS notebook when on the road. Portable computing is now a reality for the Macintosh in the form of the PowerBook series, three lightweight notebook computers that let you work wherever you want to, on the couch, on a plane, or in a remote mountain cabin. It took Apple years to offer these new machines, because, as we heard previously from Jean-Louis Gasset, he wanted to subcontract Sony to help miniaturize the original Macintosh Portable, but internal politics prevented him from doing so. Robert Brunner, manager of industrial design for Apple during the PowerBook 100 era. About the time I joined, we introduced the Mac Portable, which um, I remember I had one. And when I, when I traveled with the Mac Portable, I had to get a first-class seat, and I had to make sure I was an aisle seat on the left-hand side of the plane so I wouldn't elbow anybody as I tried to use the trackball because the thing was about 18 inches wide. Um, wait, oh, there's a typo. That should say 16-pound Mac portable, um, which is literally what it weighed. And about the same time, Compaq came out with the LTE, which is about half the weight. Um, and we used to have this mantra about it's not a shrunken desktop. Well, one of the problems with the Mac Portable is it was designed exactly like the 2CX, like a desktop. And, and this product was functionally a fantastic product from a manufacturability, assembly, serviceability, great. But it somehow began to lose the soul. But at least they're real Macintoshes that perform similarly to desktop Macs with comparable CPUs and internal hardware. Macworld lab tests show that the PowerBooks run at about 80% the speed of comparable desktop machines, a difference due mostly to the slower refresh rate for the PowerBooks screens. That line always threw me for a loop when I was a kid. 
Did they mean the slow switching speed of liquid crystals was holding back system performance? That didn't make any sense. I think they're referring to the absence of dedicated video memory. The PowerBooks use RAM-based graphics, just like the notoriously slow built-in video of the Macintosh 2CI and SI. Although Apple succeeded in delivering the features expected in a notebook while retaining the Macintosh feel, Apple broke no technological ground in developing the PowerBooks. These notebook computers aren't perfect, and they won't replace a desktop Mac. PowerBook users will have to get used to a murkier screen, mushier keys, a condensed keyboard, limited life batteries, and a new kind of trackball. But each of the three PowerBooks weighs less than 6.8 pounds and fits easily inside a briefcase. Apple apparently learned its lesson from the overpriced, overweight Macintosh Portable and has finally come up with something longtime Apple Watchers never thought they'd see usable notebooks at competitive prices. The Basic 100 model costs about $2,500 US dollars, the Basic 140 about $2,900 and the Basic 170 about $4,600. The 100's price compares favorably with the price of an 8286-based notebook from Compaq, Dell, or Zeos International, while a 4 megabyte 140 at $3,200 is roughly equivalent to an 8386-based notebook from Everex or AST. The price of the high-end 170 is competitive with Compaq's LTE 386S-20 because the 170 includes a built-in fax modem and additional memory that cost extra with the Compaq. The notebook market is the fastest-growing segment in the DOS industry, accounting for 13% of sales this year and surging ahead of desktops in annual growth. Apple wants a share of this burgeoning market, as evidenced by its competitive pricing and bold product introduction at Comdex, always a DOS-centered trade show. Like the major United States-based DOS notebook manufacturers, Apple has decided to hold the price of its notebooks, despite the recent tariff imposed on Japanese active matrix screen displays used in many notebooks, including the PowerBook 170. Apple is likely to shift the production of the 170 away from the United States to its overseas plants to avoid the tariff, which may make 170s scarce initially. Although all three notebooks look similar in their slate-gray casings, Robert Brunner speaking at the Computer History Museum in 2007. I'm going to tell a really long story about the color, which you know today looks unbelievably bland. But at the time, it was really radical to go dark. And it, it had one of the, the most amazing battles I've had in my career about making that product dark. Robert Brunner on an Apple internal video in 1991. Uh, one thing that people notice right off, it's different is the color. It's not our traditional Apple Platinum. We did that for a couple reasons. One, from a functional point of view, these products are handled a lot. They tend to show dirt, so we went to a, a darker value, obviously, to hide that so that they look fresh and new all the time. The darker colors did say to people, this is a, a richer thing. It's more of a personal item. They differ on the inside. The low-end 100 is a lighter, cheaper, no-frills machine with a 68,000 CPU and no internal floppy drive. Sony, which manufactures the 100 for Apple, took the original portable and miniaturized the components. In contrast, the business-oriented 140 and 170 were developed and manufactured by Apple and share the same internal architecture. They're both built around 68030 CPUs and offer a choice of hard drive and memory options. 
the 170 offers even more, a built-in modem, math coprocessor, and superior display. Apple is making the notebooks available almost simultaneously in all languages supported by Apple, except Japanese, since the required kanji ROM has not yet been developed. No target date for the Japanese language versions was set at press time. What the PowerBooks Share All three PowerBooks have a smaller keyboard based on the layout of the Macintosh Classics keyboard, complete with awkward, horizontally placed cursor keys. The PowerBooks keyboard is 2% narrower and 5% shorter than the Classics keyboard. While this is only a slight difference, it was immediately noticeable to touch typists on Macworld's staff, but most people found it easy to adjust after about 15 minutes. Still, switching back and forth between a notebook and full-size keyboard requires readjustment each time, something most DOS notebooks avoid by offering users full-size keyboards. Also, the PowerBook's keys are a tad rubbery compared to the harder, more tactile keys on desktop Macintosh keyboards. I'm aware they wanted to make everything smaller than the portable, but this really impacted the way the keyboard feels. These keys feel so cheap, they're the kind that don't register unless you hit them dead center, and even when you do, it takes a lot of force to push it all the way down, so you're trying to aim for the center and apply enough force to push the thing down on the first try, and the key next to it sort of binds to the key you're trying to push, and you end up mashing both halfway and getting nothing. It's infuriating. But this extra give makes them more appropriate for use in unsteady environments like trains, planes, and automobiles. Some Macworld editors thought the keyboards were a bit noisy for use in conferences or meetings, and the extra resiliency in the keys may be troublesome when you're working on a table or desktop. Small adjustable legs on the back of the casing let you choose from two keyboard angles for more comfortable typing. Now, one of the other things that came out of the user testing was these little lifters here that provide some angle on the keyboard when you're using it on the desktop. Robert Brunner. In the desktop mode, some inclination on the product is real important, but in the laptop mode, you want it to remain flat. So we came up with this wheel idea it's, the reason it's round is it tells you that you have to rotate it to open it, and when you do, you'll notice as you rotate around, the little foot slides out and creates the angle necessary for the desktop use. When you're ready to go, you simply flip it back up into place, it retracts, and it's out of the way and, and ready to go. The notebook's built-in pointing device is a trackball positioned below the space bar with buttons above and below in a crescent shape. You can move the trackball with either thumb while keeping your hands on the keyboard, or you can move your hand down to control the trackball with, say, your index finger. Although it's easier to control a trackball with an index finger, the PowerBook's design tempts you to rely on your thumb instead. But this requires extending the thumb farther away from the hand than is comfortable for ongoing use. Of course, you can attach a mouse through the ADB port, but it isn't very convenient when working on an airline tray table. So far, the side-mounted clip-on trackballs available on DOS notebooks are unavailable for the PowerBooks. Robert Brunner. It was clear to us that we didn't want to burden the user with an external input device, i.e. a mouse. 
From Apple's internal product launch event in 1991, Macintosh PowerBook product managers Bruce G and Wayne Westley. But we have to figure out how do you do a pointing device. It's always fun to first look at the competition and see how they do it. Bruce brings out a DOS PC laptop with a serial mouse attached via a very long cable. So what we have here is sort of your uh, sort of a standard DOS notebook computer with your what do you call this? I think you call this sort of like the Microsoft、uh, jump rope. Bruce actually skips with the Microsoft jump rope. You got to see this. Check the show notes. Wayne brings out a different PC laptop with an ugly-looking Franken trackball attached to it. A large semicircular hunk of convoluted plastic that hosts a strangely small thumb-sized trackball, all precariously dangling off the right-hand side of the laptop chassis. Well, I've got something over here, Bruce. It's not quite as aerobic as what you have there, but、uh, still no less、uh, attractive. Um, I don't know. What do you call this?、Bruce? I think like the Microsoft wart. The wart. Okay. So, Bruce has a knack for for product names. So we've got this wart here on the side, and what happens when when you try to close the case? Many people want to put these notebooks in their briefcase. This particular laptop trackball combination prevents the lid from closing completely while the trackball is attached. Is、uh, you'll be able to get、uh, all kinds of things in them, like leaded pencils and paper clips, small insects. I don't know what, whatever in there, and it's going to cause reliability problems for your、uh, for your notebook as well. Here you've got this knob on the back that can break off as you put it in. Referring to the large nine-pin serial cable protruding from the rear of the laptop. So a lot of problems initially, just as, as you look at it. Instead of placing the spacebar and other bottom row keys at the edge of the notebook's casing, Apple set the trackball so that the case doubles as a palm rest. Yes, believe it or not, a palm rest was a novel design feature at the time. Robert Brunner. There was a huge amount of pressure on the designers. They said, "Look, we have to catch up." In retrospect, that was one of the best things for a designer because the aversion to risk went way down. So、um, there was a guy in the hardware development group named John Krakauer who was the proverbial loose cannon. Invited us to his cubicle one day, and he had hacked up this、uh, Mac PowerBook. This is the basic idea: is he said, "Well, what if we moved the battery and the hard drive in the front and push the keyboard in the back and put that pointing device in the middle?" Because what we realized is that it gives you a constant work surface, no matter where you are on your lap, on the plane, whatever. Your your work surface is always consistent. Your pointing device is where you need it. We all looked at it and thought that seems pretty radical. We knew we wanted a pointing device from the beginning, and so we integrated into the design of the machine. You notice here that the keyboard is pushed back, the trackball is in the center. That leaves room for some palm rests. I can set my palms here, go ahead and type, and you can notice my wrist is straight. It's what we call in a neutral position, which is a very good ergonomic position. So it's both for right-handed and left-handed people. Since the keyboard is, yeah, it's a really hot design. As well, the keyboard is pushed back, so if I use it in my lap, unlike DOS computers where I would be crunched in here, I have plenty of room to type and work in a small area. Apple touts this as an ergonomic advantage, but only time will tell. And you know, one of one of my points of pride in my career is that you, virtually every every notebook on the market today utilizes this configuration. So, I just wish I would have patented it under my name instead of Apple. <laughs> Notebooks in general are not terribly ergonomic because there's no way to adjust the screen and keyboard positions independently.
something you could do on the original outbound. Battery Management The problem with running a notebook from a battery is that the battery always runs out too soon. In the PowerBooks, Apple has implemented typical battery management features to prolong effective working time. Sleep, which turns off the entire system but leaves unsaved contents in memory after a user-specified period of inactivity. Rest, which turns off or slows down components like disk drives, screen lighting, and CPUs after a specified period of inactivity. And automatic warnings that alert you to imminent power loss. Pressing a key or clicking the trackball reawakens a sleeping or resting system. Connecting to the outside world. All three notebooks come with a universal AC adapter for the international traveler. You can even recharge the notebooks while using the notebooks with AC power, but it takes longer than when the notebooks are turned off since only the power not needed during use is diverted to recharging the battery. You can recharge the nickel-cadmium batteries up to 500 times before needing to replace them. The PowerBooks run the new System 7.0.1. They also come bundled with Apple Talk Remote Access. I didn't really grasp the big picture here until recently. Apple really embraced the OSI model, and ARA simply replaces the physical layer, local talk or phone net cabling, with a dial-up modem link. Dial, authenticate, and bam, you're a first-class citizen on an Apple Talk network. You can print, file share, or send datagrams just as if you were connected via local talk in the same building, but from anywhere in the world via phone lines. Very, very, very slowly. Local talk over a serial port gives you 230 kilobits, or 30 kilobytes per second. A 9600 BPS modem provided 1 kilobyte per second. You need it on both your notebook and the Mac you connect to. The program also sells separately for 200 US dollars for use on any Mac. The convenience of no hassle access to your everyday system from wherever you happen to be is a great boon for portable computing even if you have to do it at the slow rate of a phone connection. Also common to the three notebooks is a new SCSI port, the HDI30, whose 30-pin high-density design leaves room on the machine's back panel for other ports. Adapters will be available to connect to standard 50-pin SCSI cables. Connectors to 25-pin cables are expected later from other companies, although it's possible that devices with proprietary cabling may have compatibility problems. Other connections include RS-422 serial ports for printers and networks, and ADB connectors for extended keyboards, mice, and other input devices. As many as three may be daisy-chained to the ADB connector. All three notebooks support sound output, but only the 140 and 170 have sound input and come with external microphones. But the notebooks lack one basic feature that even the portable has a video out port. This port is standard fare on most DOS portables and notebooks for good reason. Its omission means you can't use a color or large monochrome monitor when you're at a desk, or drive an LCD overhead projector or a large conference room monitor for presentations. In both cases, you have to transfer data, and maybe applications and fonts, to a machine with the appropriate display. Because users rightly object to such extra work, Several third-party developers offer notebook add-ons to address this and other lacks.
the Power Books 140 and 170. Each of the high-end Power Books measures 11.3 by 9.3 by 2.3 inches and weighs 6.8 pounds, slightly larger and heavier than three Macworld magazines stacked up. The Power Books also share the same logic boards and rugged polycarbonate casing. It's built out of polycarbonate, which is the same stuff they use to make bulletproof vests out of. <coughs> but the 170 boasts more powerful processing capabilities thanks to its 25 MHz 68030 CPU and a 68882 math coprocessor. The 140 has a 16 MHz 030 CPU and no coprocessor, nor can you install one later. The 170 also offers a superior display, an active matrix thin film transistor LCD that boasts clean, crisp text and graphics even when viewed from a distance and from most angles. This is the same technology used in the Macintosh Portable, although the 170's newer screen is even sharper and brighter, perhaps because of improvements in the lighting approach used. The 140 uses a murkier SuperTwist LCD with a narrower range of viewing angles, and it's covered by a clear, rubber-like film that you can damage with a pencil tip or other sharp object. The 140's LCD screen has a slow refresh rate, especially noticeable when you're moving objects around. You lose the pointer for a split second, for instance, even when moving at moderate speeds. This effect is due to the LCD technology itself and is certainly not Apple's fault. But it is bothersome and will certainly disappoint anyone used to CRT or active matrix displays. In the PowerBooks 140 and 170, you adjust brightness and contrast with a mechanical slider bar, which is more convenient than running the portable's software DA to change these levels. The displays on the 140 and 170 measure 9.8 inches diagonally, display 640 by 400 pixels in black and white only, and are 77 dots per inch. Both use the same ROM with 32-bit quickdraw as the new Quadras do. If Apple develops a notebook with a color LCD, this ROM should support it. But in the meantime, black and white is all you get. Both models use 2.5-inch Connor hard drives. The 20-megabyte drive that comes with the 140 has a 23-millisecond access time rating. Larger capacity drives will be offered in the new 2.5-inch size. The 140 and 170 also have internal SuperDrive floppy drives, but you must load and eject disks from the side, which is difficult in a narrow workspace such as an airplane tray table. Many DOS notebooks floppy drives load from the front to avoid this problem. The 100 nanosecond pseudostatic memory on the 140 and 170 may be expanded to 8 megabytes, but initially Apple will only offer 2 megabyte expansion boards. Unlike for many DOS notebooks, Memory for the PowerBooks must be installed by an Apple dealer, which is especially inconvenient for businesses that have an internal support staff to maintain and upgrade equipment. This requirement also increases costs for all users because it discourages mail order and superstore options. The 140 and 170 use mainstream nickel-cadmium batteries, which deliver enough power for two to three hours of constant use. DOS notebooks using the same technology claim longer battery life because they use a special version of the Intel chip designed for laptops and have fewer special-purpose chips on their logic board. The PowerBook uses special slim batteries developed by Apple. The advantage is a smaller, lighter battery. 
The disadvantage is that only Apple dealers carry them. What's the difference? The PowerBook 170 comes with 4 megabytes of RAM and a 40 megabyte hard drive for 4,600 US dollars, while the 140 offers 2 megabytes of RAM and a 20 megabyte hard drive for 2,900 dollars. Since it's pretty hard to launch more than one application under System 7 with only 2 megs of RAM, the 2 megabyte upgrade is nearly an essential part of the 140, which brings its price up to $3,300 if you buy the memory from Apple. The 170 has a built-in fax modem. This is a 2400 BPS data and 9600 BPS fax send-only modem. As with memory, the modem must be installed by a dealer because Apple has provided no slide-off covers or other ways to easily access the machine's internals. The PCMCIA, aka PC card standard, was only ratified in November 1990, which would have been quite late in the PowerBook's development cycle. In addition to the standard battery management features, the 170 has a power saver option, accessed from a control panel, that slows down the CPU to 16 MHz, reduces the hard drive's access rate, and dims the display's illumination. You must restart the system after selecting this option for it to take effect. This slowdown increases battery life by 20 to 30 minutes, Apple says. The PowerBook 100. Price is the key factor. At first glance, you might mistake a PowerBook 100 for a 140 or 170, at least until you pick it up. The 100 is 1.7 pounds lighter than its higher-powered siblings, but that's because it has no internal floppy drive, something that's sure to draw criticism, as the absence of a floppy drive is now almost unheard of for notebooks. The external floppy drive weighs about a pound. The 100 is smaller and thinner than the other PowerBooks. This small size requires a smaller trackball than that of the 140 and 170, 25 mm versus 30, although the keyboard is the same. The 100 is essentially the old Mac Portable, scaled down for a smaller box. The ROM is the same, the CPU is a 16 MHz 68000, and the battery is the heavier, by about 50% for equivalent power, lead-acid type. Compared to its portable predecessor, the PowerBook 100 has a smaller capacity drive, 20 megabytes versus 40, and the less appealing but lower cost Passive Matrix LCD. And although the 100 uses the same display technology as the 140, the 100's screen is smaller. Text appears smaller too, because the screen is 85 dpi instead of 77. These two factors combine to make the 100s the least appealing display of the three. Fine for occasional use, but not well suited for extended work sessions. The on-off, restart and interrupt buttons are toward the back on the left side of the case, which makes it easy to press them accidentally. On the 140 and 170, they are safely on the back panel. The 100's casing is made of lighter, more fragile plastic instead of the more impact-resistant polycarbonate used in the other PowerBooks, contributing to its less-than-rugged feel. Long-Awaited Reward For loyal Macintosh users, the PowerBooks are a reward for waiting so long for the power of a Mac that can go where they go. Although the 100 is an entry-level machine, it is well-suited for casual users who seek to do basic tasks like telecommunications, word processing, and straightforward presentations on the road. 
While the casual user can make do with the 68,000, business users need the 68030 in the 140 and 170 to really take advantage of System 7. The 140 meets the needs of the business user who wants the capabilities of a desktop Mac in a machine suitable for extended use in hotels or other sites. And the 170's math coprocessor makes the 170 a natural for spreadsheet power users, while its clear, sharp display makes it the machine of choice for anyone planning to spend a lot of hours in front of it day to day. But no matter which notebook you buy, don't think of it as a replacement for a desktop machine. Until the PowerBooks have high-capacity built-in hard drives, and until active matrix displays are available for more than just the PowerBook 170, Macintosh notebooks just won't have the power to be an all-day, everyday substitute. Even then, ergonomics considerations and the lack of color will be enough to keep most people from adopting notebooks as their primary workstations. Still, you no longer have to envy your DOS-toting colleagues, lug around an inferior machine, or worse, join their ranks. Notebook computing has arrived on the Mac in the form of solid, capable, and eminently usable power books. Robert Brunner. But I think when, when I die, what's going to be on my tombstone, it's going to say the guy who hired Jonathan Ive. <laughs> because I, I, you know, I've been out of Apple for over 10 years. Every, virtually every interview I do, still people want to talk about uh, Apple, and then I usually get well, what was Jonathan like, you know? <laughs> um, the other data point that was interesting for me is getting this stuff out of the storeroom, which I hadn't done for years, and our 20-something our, um, our receptionist um, looked at them like they were, like it was a 1957 Chevy, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I said, these are only 12 years old. I mean, that's like, a, you know, a 95 Jetta, you know? Um, but to her, no, this was like, my God, look at those things. So it, it shows... <laughs> The, the speed at which this industry progresses and how quickly things age and how quickly things change and, and invalidate what you've, what you've done just a few years ago.